Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. everybody how's it going you know earlier this year we put out a survey so our listeners could tell us what topics interested them most and we wanted to report back what we heard so we thought we'd go ahead and outline them counting down the top six to the number one most popular topic among peoples and things listeners it probably makes more sense to do a top five but number six is so good i couldn't help but share it The sixth most popular topic with Peoples and Things listeners, mills. Everything to do with mills. Lumber mills, grist mills, windmills, water-driven mills. You people are crazy about mills. And believe me, I get it. In fact, I believe that there has not been nearly enough mill content on this podcast. I promise you we're going to work on that. All right, number five, criticizing immoral, stupid, and absurd actions by technology firms, perhaps especially those in Silicon Valley. Sure. I mean, yep. You know, I think if we gave this survey a few years ago, this one would have been way higher on the list. But, you know, picking on these companies is so easy and has gotten kind of boring. And like, it's not what the cool kids are doing anymore. Cool kids aren't talking about big tech or whatever anymore. They're into things like mills and grocery stores. Two very hot topics right now. Okay, the fourth most popular technology topic with Peoples and Things listeners is 
making fun of ridiculous trends in science and technology studies like anticipatory governance and socio-technical imaginaries. I mean, totally. It's a little niche and inside baseball, but really, I think the only moral option available to us is to cast the cantrip vicious mockery on these stupid trends. It's not like you're going to rationally talk people out of them. So yeah, I agree. All right, we're getting up there. Drum roll, number three, maintenance and repair. Obviously, obviously. I mean, what more do you really have to say? That's why we are friends. The second most popular topic on technology with Peoples and Things listeners is standards and standardization. My God, yes, yes. Can someone write me a hymn, a hymn to standardization? This is why we need each other. We're a community. Whether it's screw threads or Wi-Fi or tailpipe emission standards or like how plumbing pieces fit together just so nicely. Is there anything more holy and interesting than standards? But let me just say, Fuck Bluetooth. I mean, has there ever been a worse communication standard in human history? God damn. Blow it to hell. Okay, here we are, folks. Number one, the big one, the most popular technology topic for peoples and things listeners. Bureaucracy. Bureaucracy. The great pleasures and tortures of bureaucracy. Again, I'm with you. The rise of organizational culture has defined modernity more than anything else, I believe. And yet it has also created so many, many hells of mediocrity and mind-breaking red tape. It's the best and it's the worst, which means it is also deeply, deeply fascinating. Now, if you feel that way, well... I am very glad to introduce you to today's guest, Aaron Gordon, a senior writer from Motherboard, Vice's tech and science website. Aaron lives in New York with his wife, Rosemary, and their cat, Harriet, who is an extremely high-performing cat, one of the cattiest cats who has ever catted. I mean, just the owl-like looks of condescension and disdain she gives alone would be enough to put her in the Cat Hall of Fame. I used an article Aaron co-wrote with his colleague, Janus Rose, titled The Least Safe Day, Rollout of Gun-Detecting AI Scanners in Schools Has Been a Cluster Email Shows, simply as an excuse to bring him on the podcast. It's a very interesting story about technology hype around AI and how new technologies so often underperform it. But really, really, I just want you to meet Aaron Gordon whose work I think you should be following. We talk about his transition from being a sports reporter to being someone who writes about infrastructure, maintenance, and you got it, bureaucracy. We talk about his work on the U.S. Postal Service, of all things, bureaucracy. And we also talk about problems around electric vehicles, which is a frequent topic of conversation of ours. I hope you enjoy this chat. You should follow Aaron's stuff and you should get excited.
thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. No problem. Thanks for having me. So um, tell us a bit about this article, The Least Safe Day, which you wrote with your colleague Janice Rose. Sure. So it's an article uh, about the Charlotte School District in Charlotte, North Carolina, which bought uh, a four-year subscription costing about $4 million total to outfit its high schools with a weapons detection system by this company called Evolve. That, and the, the company claims that this system uses artificial intelligence to basically uh, detect every weapon ever invented is the way its, uh, its founder put it um, in, one, in one media interview. And it basically, you know, they, they, the company is very aggressive in saying that it is not a metal detector. Um, even though like in, in, uh, actuality, it is very much a metal detector that Uh combines, it combines software with metal detection to try and use some kind of algorithm to interpret whether a weapon is at, or whether an object is actually a weapon or a harmless metal item. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, but it still uses metal detection. Um, so, you know, and, and the, promise of this company and and there are other companies like it too is that it can do security screenings at high volume sites like schools or sporting events or hospitals or museums or things like that um, much quicker and more efficiently than traditional metal detector screenings Uh, but one thing that is kind of an open question about these technologies is how well they work and as anyone who has ever been through a, in a metal detector knows um, they're, they have different settings and they're very sensitive. They can either be very sensitive in which case like any metal item, like a belt buckle will set it off and then you have to get wanded or they can be set very weakly in which case they're just trying. And like you can go through with most normal items, but like if you're holding uh, a very large high powered rifle it would probably set the machine off. And so right. <laughs> like what each what each metal detector operator has to choose is like how sensitive they want their system to be based on what they think their threat model is. This is a known trade-off with metal detectors. And companies like Evolve are basically trying to say, uh, or, or to imply, I should say, that their system doesn't have these trade-offs that like you can send masses of people through them. And because it can tell the difference between metal objects, um, you don't have to really have this trade-off and uh, between security and convenience. Um, I believe they say on their website that they offer a quote unquote line free experience. (laughs) And so we, we filed these, this public records request with the Charlotte school district, basically to find out how it went, you know, Mm -hmm. once they put these, uh, metal detectors into place and uh the records make pretty clear that it didn't go very well um you know the headline in the article includes the word like uh is a reference to the word clusterfuck which is what a principal described the first day of having these detectors <laughs> was like um because they had to screen basically every single student with a wand like a traditional metal detector wand because they every single student was setting the machine off oh um, the machines do have different sensitivity settings mm-hmm. and we found that uh a reference to the school district it was another school district that had used this system or bought this system. And they found that on um, the middle sensitivity setting, which I think is like a C, 
they could walk through it with a Glock pistol and these <laughs> machine would not go off. And so they found that they have to have it on a D setting in order to detect like basic pistols. Um, the, but then they said, but we use it on a C most of the time, except for high security events. So like they basically admitted that they're constantly using it on a system that won't detect one of the most popular pistols in the United States. And, uh, but they bought, but Charlotte bought the system anyways. Um, yeah. And they used it and there were, you know, there were these very real trade-offs between how strictly they wanted um, their security to be, you know, in terms of weapons detection versus the convenience that the company was was selling them on. And yeah. one of the biggest problems is that um, the system is set off very easily by Chromebooks because of the design of the hinges. Like if you squint, looks a lot like a gun. Mm-hmm. And uh, every student in the school district is given a Chromebook for, you know, school. So there is actually this footage that the school district posted online of students walking through these detectors, holding the Chromebooks out like arm's length <laughs> away, because if they walk through the detector that way, it doesn't set it off. And like the, the, the company says, oh, well, there's always an adjustment period to using it. And like what's very clear is that these schools have to basically completely redo the way they have students enter and exit the schools to fit this, what the technology's very real limitations rather than the other way around. And it's not clear how successful this is at preventing guns from coming in the schools. The school district bragged about how after they installed these, um, so they found like, I think it was 30 guns on campus in the first half of the school year, which on all of their campuses combined, which is a lot and is definitely like a cause for concern, no question. but they only started installing these um, in March through May of this year. And they had already stopped finding guns in January. So, but they attribute the complete, you know, the basically not finding any more guns on campus to this system, even though the decline had already started before they installed them. So, and they had, they had done yeah. other things like create like student reporting apps, anonymous reporting apps and these types of things that, hmm. I think uh, may have been more responsible than than these battle huh. detectors. But anyways, that's what that's what the story was about. And you you got onto it because they were thinking of um, installing it elsewhere. Is that how you first started looking into this? Yeah. So I uh, this is a bit outside of my traditional beat. I traditionally yeah. cover transportation infrastructure and environmental issues. Um, and I first heard of this company because after a high profile shooting in the New York City subway the mayor of New York talked about installing this system at subway entrances. And I cover a lot of uh, companies claiming in the transportation space that they can Mm. use advanced technology to do things that they cannot. And so, (laughs) uh, so I, I think I approach these types of claims naturally from a skeptical perspective. Um, And when I heard that, like, there's basically an upgraded metal detector that people can walk through at a normal pace without removing anything from their backpacks or clothes for, you know, to like separate out metal detect metal metallic items from their person. And it can be installed at subway entrances with no inconvenience to anyone um, that didn't pass the sniff test, I guess. And so I started looking around to see if this, if there had been any complaints about the system in the past and sure enough, the Chromebook issue was a known issue at the time. So mm. I wrote a short story about that, how like 
people walk through subway entrances with laptops and if you know and so right. that doesn't that doesn't seem great to me uh as a as a solution uh and then yeah so so as a result of that i then started filing public records requests with school systems that were already using it and uh that's how i ended up getting these records i don't know if you've ever seen uh david kirsch or brent goldfarb's book brent bubbles and crashes which is about technology bubbles but one time goldfarb told me he's like you always got to wonder about bubbles when, uh, you know, traditional technology companies are passing themselves off as tech firms. And like this, <laughs> like describing metal detectors is like AI is like a perfect example of it. I think, you know, it's just so beautiful. Yeah, there's something there's something almost comical about the way the company is doing this in some respects, because uh, they have like they sell tablets to these or the tablets are part of the system, you know, to monitor because there's like a little camera. And the way they identify like who is setting off the alarm is they put like a rectangular box around the person. Hmm. And it's like, uh, it has the trappings of a high tech thing. It's like, ah, it's in his pants, you know, or something like that is the way is the way their marketing material shows it. But in reality, it just puts a box around like the entire person and the two people standing next to them too. If they're like (laughs) coming through like very quickly, it's just basically like a giant alarm. But yeah. they've like, but they've programmed it so that it looks like it's more targeted than it is. And it's just like, there's a lot of, and, you know, I've, I've said all the bad things about this technology to begin with. And I just want to be clear, like, it does detect weapons. It's not yeah. like a complete, it's not a complete like scam or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just, it's present, it's giving this marketing uh, angle that it, has no trade-offs between safety and between security and convenience when yeah. the experience of its customers seem to very much show that it has those same trade-offs as this much more, much older, cheaper, and more reliable technology. Um, yeah. And, you know, on like the cheaper angle, like one little detail from the story that still makes me chuckle is like after two weeks, somehow one of the schools broke their tablet, like it fell, I guess. And they had to order a replacement one and Evolve charged them $2,000 for a replacement tablet. And it's like, that's, that's more than twice as expensive as the highest end iPad on the market. Yeah. And, it's, and like, it's not obviously not rugged, like they dropped it and it broke. So right. it's just like, just the, the kind of like nickel and diming aspect of it too, is also just yeah. like very, very on point. <laughs> um. Well, you know, one thing that stood out I liked about your article is that like um, at one point I'm very interested in in how many adoption efforts of digital systems fail, because um, if you look in like the consulting literature, the, the numbers all over the place, which tells you we don't have good numbers. It's like it runs from like 20 percent failure rates to 70 percent failure rates. But the, either way, the numbers high of fa- like failed adoptions. But it's really hard to get those stories because, first of all, the companies aren't going to tell you about it. And a lot of times, even adopting firms don't have an interest in being honest with you or like coming out like we tried to do this thing and it fell on its face, you know. But oh, yeah. like that was like, I mean, you're nailing the issue on the head here because like the school system is adamant that this was a huge success. I mean, uh-huh. and they are, they are, uh, they, in fact, after this semester, over the summer, bought an, more subscriptions to Evolve 
to expand the system to all their middle and most of their elementary schools too, at a cost of $10 million and for four years. And like, they, again, they will not say it will, it had issues or wasn't a success Mm. because in their minds it wasn't. And I think the key here is how do you define success and failure? Yeah. And that's very different depending on, well, I mean, obviously it depends on the technology and the use case, but it also depends on the observer, like the eyes of the beholder. Yeah. And right. one thing that was clear from these emails, um, and I very much sympathize with the school district on this front, is, you know, I got I had email like this covered the period after the Uvalde shooting or during and after the Uvalde shooting. Uh-huh. And immediately after the shooting even though that occurred like, you know, thousands of miles away from the school district, parents were emailing the school district being like, this is a terrifying time to send kids to school. Like how, what are you doing to keep them safe? And, and look, I mean, these metal detection systems will do absolutely nothing to stop a mass shooter. Absolutely nothing. And, you know, just like almost every security measure, unfortunately, like just doesn't really work if someone is, hell-bent on doing something that evil. And the school district knows that, I think. Like, it was from the emails. Like, I mean, one of the school board, like the executive director of the school board, I believe it was, responded to one of these parents' uh, parent emails and said explicitly, like, nothing that we're doing is going to stop this if someone walks up to the school, you know, with a school gun. Um, But they're expected to do something to prevent it. You know, they're expected to demonstrate that they're taking security seriously. And so from their perspective, installing, you know, this is a very large school district, spending $15 million over four years is not nothing, but it's also not a huge line item on their budget. And if that makes parents and students feel better about coming to school every day, then it's absolutely worth the money for them. So again, how do you define success or failure, I think is like a very tricky question especially when it comes to security where so much of it is about like how people feel you know that's something that comes up a lot when i cover safety on public transportation which is something i've written about a few times and it's like that's almost all perception and like Mm -hmm. almost all the expenditure that the government takes to uh about security and safety on the subway for example is like mostly about making people feel better they even like pretty much explicitly said that when they announced this week that they're installing security cameras in every single subway car they're like this isn't going to stop anyone from doing something bad it's just to make everyone feel better so that they'll come back to work you know so (laughs) so yeah success or failure it's very much in the eye of the beholder yeah, yeah, one of my doctoral students is um doing his uh his dissertation on uh basically the adoption of large software systems at universities. And like, that's part of what he's uh, looking into. Cause like success or failure is always like, depends on where you're sitting uh, in the thing. And, you know, to your point about, you know, like administrators at the top of a bureaucracy, like a large school district, they're always going to say it's a success, you know, unless it's like such an obvious failure that you can't get out of it. So there's another interesting example there. I'll just, I'll just mention briefly, which is, um, during the pandemic, there was a very, very, there was a huge rush for temperature detection systems. I don't even remember mm-hmm. this. It was mm-hmm. like cameras that could tell oh, right. if people had fevers, not yeah. the thermometers that they put to your forehead, but like 
security cameras, basically, right. that could detect people's temperature from afar. And there have been a bunch of really good investigations recently. One of them was in the Daily Beast about how, like, I mentioned earlier how this security company, like, it's not a scam. Like, they actually yeah. do what they say they're going to do. They're just trade-offs. These, were act these cameras were actual scams. Like, wow. like, they didn't work. The companies knew they didn't work because they were registering temperatures that would mean people were dead. And they would <laughs> instead just, and they instead programmed their algorithm to just, like, correct that temperature for what a human temperature would be, you know, mm -hmm. which is like not how taking people's temperatures work. Um, and, but they sold these cameras to a lot of school districts. And that is like, I think one of the rare examples where one school district actually said like, yeah, that was a bad purchase. That, yeah. that was a failure. But like okay. outside of being like outright scammed, it's pretty rare for anyone to do that, at least publicly. Yeah. I loved in the uh, your the um, uh, weapon detection system article too how Evolve uh, won't comment because of security issues. It was a beautiful kind of example of like security speak or something. Like you, it, it sounds like in the article that you presented Evolve with a bunch of questions. Like we won't comment on any technical details because it's all like about security and safety ultimately. That was yeah, that's right. We asked them. I mean, we asked them a lot of questions uh, and uh, gave them, you know, ample opportunity to comment. And they did respond to a lot of our questions. But anything about the technical capabilities of the I system, mm -hmm. they said, basically, we won't comment on that. And uh, they also urged us not to report on the sensitivity oh, that's settings. What it was. Yeah, because yeah. and they said by doing so, we would be putting students in danger, um, which is. A not not terribly unusual claim in the security industry. You know, it's kind of related to the whole like if if you talk about what the if you expose the government for doing something bad, then you're a traitor type right. of logic, which right. is like if you expose security because like again, so much of it comes back down to perception. And oh, right now people perceive this system as working. And if you do anything to suggest that maybe the system isn't working as intended then you're, by their logic, making people unsafe because people know their system isn't working, which is at the very least a clever argument. I will give them that. <laughs> um, I personally, you know, as a reporter, like we don't subscribe to that logic. And I yeah. don't think a lot of people would, to be perfectly frank, when it comes to a private security company that uses taxpayer dollars to, you yeah. know, to pay for its system. Um, but yeah, that is something you get, like, uh, you know, in that case, like, what's the difference between having an actual algorithm and just putting up like a wooden box that people have to walk <laughs> through and a tablet that someone stares at and just being yeah. like, yeah, the system works, you know, like at what point, obviously there's a point at which it becomes fraud and like, right. to be per like, to be perfectly right, I'm not accusing Evolve of doing anything like that, but I'm just saying like reporting on how a system works is just like the basic job of a free yeah. free press. So it's like it was pretty <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah, it's but it, uh, they they sure did it. They sure did. So how did you get into journalism, man? You started as a sports reporter, is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so I did not study journalism in school at all. I went to college for philosophy um, and history, and I didn't know or think about becoming a journalist at all while I was in college. Um, I actually, 
uh, wrote my very first like article, if you were, um, on the day that our graduation ceremony was happening, which I skipped huh. to go to the beach instead. Um, and a friend who was into journalism got like this internship job where he was editing at this website whose name I can't remember. That was like part of this massive online publications that popped up in the late 2000s as every entrepreneur thought like this was the easy way to make lots of money because mm. you could just write a popular article and lots of people would see the ads on it if it went viral and then you would be rich um, right was the logic uh, and so all they had to do was find lots of people to write stuff for free and uh, it turns out college graduates looking to get into uh, journalism <laughs> were in vibrant market. So yeah, my friend was like, I just need people to write, like, do you want to write something for me? I was like, sure, I'll write something stupid for you. And it turned out that I actually really enjoyed doing it. Um, so I worked a completely unrelated job, like just a nine to five to pay the bills for the first couple of years out of college and did sports reporting um, in my spare time, essentially. Uh, mm -hmm. And just kind of like, you know, got into the industry that way, like one assignment would lead to another assignment would lead to another. And then eventually I started getting paid for it, which was nice. And then uh, it, at, so, at one point I realized I was actually getting paid enough that maybe if I could do it full time, I would actually be able to pay the bills that way. Um, and that seemed fun. So I quit my job and then uh, I started in sports journalism for a while. Um, I did that for a couple of years and then uh, the sport the sports site I worked for was uh, Vice's Sports Vertical, which uh, uh, they shut down in 2017 and laid us all off. And that was what when was I it called? My, it was called Vice Sports. It was the okay, only one that okay. didn't have like a kind of like brand name, like motherboard. Okay, okay, you okay. know, right, yeah. <laughs> they weren't very, they weren't as creative with Vice Sports, which okay. maybe show maybe shows how much they. Uh, well, I won't say that. Um, <laughs> uh, I do still work. I do work here, but yeah. Um, <laughs> It was just called Vice Sports. Uh, uh -huh. and, then, uh, and then that was when I made the transition to writing about transportation uh, because this was in 2017, the summer of 2017, when the subway was like completely falling apart here. Oh, in New that York. was the summer of hell. That's right. It was. And uh, I, the, the motivation for, for transitioning to the subway beat was like, I had this suspicion that there was a lot more going on than like mm -hmm. what I thought what I was reading about in the news like the news was just telling me about like deferred maintenance bills come to yeah are coming due and to me the incompetence seemed a lot more wide ranging than that yeah and I wanted to and since I had about since I had some severance money to play with as a little bit of a cushion I yeah. decided to see what I can do there and I uh as it happens, at the same time, the Village Voices transportation editor moved to San Diego. So they were looking for a new... This was back when the Village Voice actually existed. Um, right. And so I, I was able to get some gigs uh, writing for them. And that just kind of metastasized. And then next thing I knew, I was like a full-time transportation reporter. That's wild, man. And so, I mean, were you really into transportation as a topic at that point? Or was that you Not just kind of all. fell into it? Not at all. I had like... <laughs> absolutely no interest in transportation as a topic. Um, I, the first transportation story I wrote was actually uh, nine months before that, when I was covering the uh, Rio Summer Olympics uh -huh. for, for Vice Sports. And um, 
I wrote a story about this new bus rapid transit line that they had built uh-huh. specifically for the Olympics that went from the airport through a working class neighborhood connecting to the Olympic Park. And it was like basically a worthless transit line except for during the Olympics. And it also yeah. like it also had some really negative effects on the community that it was built through. Mm. So I wrote a story about that. And like, I didn't know at the time I was writing my first transportation story, but yeah, that's what it ended up being. Well, it's funny going back and looking at some of your sports journalism, because it's like there are themes of science and technology there uh, pretty often that like you could easily draw a line. I mean, it just it didn't work that way. You kind of fell into it, but it's like you could say, oh, he was interested in technology and then he started writing about different technology. But that's that's not how it played out. Yeah, no, it is. That is true. Um, So like some of the some of the early uh, some of those stories were like about sports science and yeah. about um, and about doping in sport. And yeah. these are two fields where there are, at least at the time I was covering them in like 2015, 2016, there were and, and then 2017, there were a lot of hucksters in the sports science world mm. because it was like fairly early in the period of teams being interested in putting those like GPS trackers on their players with like heart rate monitors and just like monitoring like every single, like quantifying every single thing the athletes did, like during every training and every game and then like monitoring their sleep schedules and like all these other things. Like this was just the beginning of that era. And there were companies popping up left and right run by like any sports scientist being like, we can do this. And these systems are incredibly valuable, no question, but they're just, they're just pieces of data and you need really yeah. smart people to interpret them to yeah. actually get anything out of it. And what some of these companies were doing was like basically claiming that you didn't need to employ a sports scientist mm. because they would be your sports scientist. And that's just like, that's like, be, that's like saying you don't need to go to a doctor, just fill out, just like talk to this camera and then we'll use an algorithm to diagnose what's wrong with you. Like just mm-hmm. really, really bad ideas. So there was a lot of that going on. And then like the sports doping world is just like, that's an entire world of hucksters. So like <laughs> that was, that was rich too. And like technology interweaves into that in a lot of interesting ways as well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think you're right. It was definitely there. And I think it's because I, you know, if you're a sports writer, especially a young one, you're looking to figure out how you can do something that's a little bit different than what everybody else is doing so that you can actually get one of the very few jobs out there. Um, And, and I'm not like, I'm not the most elegant writer of prose when it comes to describing the beauty of a baseball flying through the air (laughs) or whatever. Um, I'm also not like, uh, I'm not interested in being like a beat writer for a team, you know, yeah, that was, that never yeah. appealed to me and that le- left a pretty narrow window. And so mm-hmm. I was, but like one, one thing that did interest me and that was kind of there for the taking was someone who was going to treat these stories about sports science, about doping, about, um, you know, about athlete rights in terms of union rights and in terms of, hmm. uh, owning their own health data and these types of things um, more seriously than as like a series of press releases, which is how most sports writers treat them because it's not their area of expertise and they don't really know what to do with it. And so you end up with a lot of stories being like, 
one day athletes will be able to, you know, one day basketball players will be able to jump 15 feet high every, you know, every time because of this new technology or whatever. Right. I, I don't know. I just made that up off the top of my head, but like, you know, and it's just like treated like as this like inevitability that, um, yeah. that will definitely happen. And because, and then like whoever writes it just moves on to the next thing because they filed their story. And, uh, I was like, well, it might be interesting to actually report on these things, like actually report on them. Um, yeah. Little did I know at the time, that's like pretty much just how technology is written about in every right. <laughs> every field. So right. uh, I was harsh on the sports world at the time, but like it's no different than anywhere else. So. Yeah, yeah. Than CNBC or whatever. Um, so after you did some, after you did this subway stuff, I mean, you spent a long time writing about the USPS at one point, right? Was that soon after yeah. that? So the the subway, I was on the subway beat for about two years, um, where it was like my full time thing, huh. and then, uh, and and like I was very interested in the bureaucracy of the MTA because, mm-hmm. um, to put a long story short, I basically formed what ended up being a a counter thesis for the summer of hell, and it, it the MTA was saying it was because they had deferred maintenance on. Mm-hmm all of this stuff for so long and now it was all breaking and they just needed to pump more money and maintenance into the system and everything would be fixed. And my counter narrative, which like, to be clear, was based on, you know, dozens of interviews with people who worked at the MTA with experts there with internal documents and data that's not publicly available was that actually the subway had been deteriorating very steadily for a long time due to, due to basically bad operations like Mm -hmm. they were just not running the subway well and uh it was this lack of focus of attention to like to put it in a very short sentence the traffic signals in the subway were broken and so if you imagine like what would happen to our roads if all the traffic signals were broken everything would be gridlocked it would run a lot slower things would break off and there would be lots of crashes fortunately there weren't lots of crashes but like you know, it had a similar uh, analog- analogous effect down there. And like, you know, if the traffic signals are broken, sure, it could be that all the traffic sin- signals are just super, super old. And that's and, and, you know, like we just need to replace them and everything would be fine. Or it could be that, like, you know, every couple of years you have to go out there and change the light bulb and nobody did. And it turns out that the uh, explanation for what was going on with the MTA, at least in my uh, you know, reporting, was it was much closer to the latter that like there were lots I of see. things they could do to run it efficiently without spending billions of dollars on this maintenance on this like you know deferred maintenance catch-up mm-hmm. program and the, and so that was like basically the gist of it and so during that whole process i became very very interested in the nature in which bureaucracies become dysfunctional and what leads to that and how it can be fixed mm-hmm. and you asked about the USPS and I promise this relates um, <laughs> because I ended up coming to work for motherboard in um, 2020 and in the summer of 2020, I wrote a story about how, again, based on public records, uh, a public records request, I got these engineering reports from the USPS about why hundreds of their delivery trucks spontaneously combust essentially Uh like just catch on fire for no apparent reason i forgot about this yeah and uh the upshot is it's because they're extremely old and they're like trying to you know like a lot of them were bought in the 80s and they're trying to like 
in many cases, literally duct tape them together or like put, or like fix, fix old trucks with the carcasses of other old trucks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just like, they're doing the best they can to kind of paste these things together while they're trying to buy new ones, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And after I did that story, I heard from like, what was probably dozens of postal workers who were like, you think the trucks are bad. You should hear about like this other, you know, problem. We uh, okay. have in <laughs> and it was just, it just like immediately became clear to me that like, this was another horrendously broken bureaucracy. Yeah. And, you know, in the same mold. And, and as an aside, both happened to be these weird quasi public. Right. Authorities that are like, kind of the government, but also kind of not the government. Right. Um, b- because they were both founded in the 60s and 70s when the, US, when the U.S. had this obsession with like making every government function, every government entity function more like a business because obviously right. the corporation is the ideal version of human organization. Um, <laughs> yes. But uh, so it was just like I recognized it immediately and uh-huh. this was the summer of 2020. There was a big election coming up. We were in the middle of a pandemic and the USPS was going to play an absolutely pivotal role in this election in delivering ballots. And as I'm sure everyone will remember, there was like a ton of angst over like whether the USPS would actually be able yeah. to deliver the ballots, whether Louis DeJoy was like a Trump rogue who would like oh, you that's, know, yeah, harvest yeah. The, ballots, the ballots in his basement, you know, just like whatever, <laughs> whatever conspiracy right. theory was getting. So like, at that point, I went to my editors and I was like, I think the USPS is going to be a really big story. I think if I get out on it now, we'll have like a leg up on everyone else who's scrambling to understand the place um, yeah. come November. And they agreed. And so I did this like basically six month project writing stories about the USPS, how this like beloved American institution became also like the object of scorn for inefficiency and mm-hmm. um, and waste and how like, and how it's kind of like this larger, um, not metaphor, cause it's real, but like, you know, example yeah. of um, American institutions not getting the support they need in order to function properly, which then creates like a negative feedback loop where people don't want to invest in it properly because it doesn't work anyways. So why should we throw good money after bad? And the institutions just kind of crumble as a result. And then when you actually need them, they're, you know, in many cases, not there to function properly. Now, as it happens, the USPS handled the election quite well. Um, And this is because despite everything, the USPS actually does still do its job um, for the most part. And there are lots of reasons for that, but I don't have to get into it right now. Well, to say that, I mean, why do you think it still does its job, even though it's like got all these countervailing forces? Well, it's kind of like the subway in that, you know, one of the things that fascinated me about the subway is like. Every like is one of the few things that every New Yorker knows has to work in order for the city to function. Like even even people who hate the subway and never ride it for their own personal reasons generally don't like want the government to stop spending any money on the subway and just like say fuck it screw the subway like they (laughs) want other people to take the subway just they don't want to take it right right and and it's like the one thing every new yorker can agree on and so the subway you know it goes through these cycles where nobody pays attention to it because it works well enough and then it develops these problems over time 
then there's a huge push to fix it. And that gets it more or less back on its feet. And then another 10 or 20 years go by and then the cycle repeats. And the USPS is a very similar institution, but it works on a different time cycle. And the last time people were paying a lot of attention to the USPS was in the early 70s when there was this huge strike. Um, It was actually the largest wildcat strike in US history. I think it was in 1970, um, Mm -hmm. where the workers basically shut down the post office more or less for a couple of weeks um, because their working conditions were horrendous. And uh, that was when the USPS was created and spun out of the postal department, which was then a cabinet office. And uh, the idea was that it would be, it was that it would support itself financially. Now that's never actually happened. That's like a complete fiction, but basically the post office is able to continue functioning well enough for most people's purposes because every time it gets close enough to not functioning, people pay just enough attention to it to get it functioning again well enough that then they can stop paying attention to it again. Yeah. And uh, I, think, I think 2020 was uh, another step in that cycle. Um, actually, this year, Congress passed a really important law to help it financially that didn't get much attention. Huh. It was like probably one of the purest examples of Congress just coming together on a bipartisan basis and passing like an actually effective law that did something good. Now, granted, this was to, this was to um, make up for the fact that in 2003, it passed a very bad law on a bipartisan basis, (laughs) totally ruined the USPS's finances. Um, Uh So it was like to correct a mistake rather than, you know, do something good. But anyways, uh, so, you know, now we're in that cycle again. And I think, you know, in another decade or two, we'll be back to talking about how the USPS is completely broken and needs all this major work. But like for now, it works well enough. I'm curious, did you ever talk to the historian Richard John when you were doing USPS stuff? I didn't, no. Okay. He's kind of a mentor. He's been on the podcast before and he is a historian of the Postal Service. So his first book was like a history of the post office. I Um, talked to um, a couple of historians, but not him. I'm not sure how I missed him. Um, so how do you think of your beat t- today? I mean, do you have to define it for your editors or is it, I mean, what do you, what do you do? Uh, the short answer is I don't really have to define it for my editors. I personally find it healthy to have a bit of a focus. Yeah. I'm kind of willing and my editors encourage me to write about anything that like anything that's interesting that I come across essentially that yeah. I feel like I have some, you know, insight into or have some reporting on that could, you know, add something to the conversation. Um, but the way I describe my beat is that I write about in- infrastructure, transportation, and the environment, and especially in where those three things meet, you know, which mm-hmm. is a, there's a lot of overlap between those three things. Um, and <laughs> partly on purpose, uh, if, if anything touches, you know, the, the, the universe of, of topics I could write about that touches one of those three things yeah. um, is quite large. So like, you know, almost like I can, like uh, I can justify writing the evolve story, for example, because like schools are infrastructure, you know, yeah. like, right, so right, it's right. Like, you know, it's very, it's very broad. Um, but I yeah. think that's, I think that's good and useful, but like in general, I'm very interested in, um, in bureaucracies, as I mentioned, yeah. and how they how they become dysfunctional, especially bureaucracies that people really care about. Um, I think 
I didn't do much reporting on this, but there was a lot of great stuff around like the CDC post, you know, like as the pandemic went and people realized that they had really fucked this one up in a lot of important ways. Yeah. Um, and I thought those stories were like super fascinating too. Um, so yeah, that's like a particular interest of mine for sure. Um, so I wanted to give people like some sense of your, some of your recent stuff. So, I mean, you do have like, so I think it was in March you put out why the U.S. sucks at building public transit. Does that sound right? March 2020. Uh, oh, it, is it that old? Yeah, that was like the first feature I did for Motherboard and it came out with okay. the, week the pandemic started in the U.S. Or like we, you know, we thought it started. That's not the one I'm thinking of then. Maybe it was called like why the U.S. doesn't build stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, so there, I've done a couple of stories with like very similar headlines like that. So in March 2020, it was why the U.S. sucks at building public transit, which is uh -huh. basically like about why so many other countries can build better public transit that's more functional for, for a lot less money than we can. Mm -hmm. And then uh, earlier this year, I published why the U.S. doesn't build big things. That's what which I'm thinking, is, yeah, which yeah. is Which is a story about um, environmental review laws, essentially. Mm -hmm. And uh, this started because I've been seeing an what I perceive to be an increasingly popular call on the liberal slash progressive left in the U S huh. to erode at environmental review laws under the, under the argument that environmental review laws are um, unjustifiably onerous towards building, especially renewable energy infrastructure, which we yeah. desperately need to fight climate change. And so these laws have to be, um, have to be reformed in order to meet our clean energy goals. Mm -hmm. And it was a very popular, and I think in many ways persuasive argument, but I noticed something very consistent about these arguments, which is they use a lot of very, very broad terms, definitions, and arguments with almost no specificity to advance this very, very, um, I would say radical argument in terms of how people who care about the environment should um, view the necessity of these environmental review laws. Yeah. And, the, and there were a couple of things that I noticed consistently missing from these arguments, which is what exactly is an environmental review law? What do they do? What about the process exactly is broken? What can be done to fix it? And what would this what would these reforms actually look like instead? And, and these are like, you know, a list of like five of what I would consider like the most important questions if I was right. writing an article <laughs> on the subject. And so I thought, well, maybe I should. And so I spent like the better part of this year on and off kind of researching that. And what I found is that, um, again, back to this question of bureaucracies, like there one there's almost no information out there about like how these environmental review processes actually go there's no mm -hmm. there's very little holistic data out there on like what is taking so long about the process because there are many steps yeah. in the process and instead people trot out often these like high level statistics like the median and average review length process and right. it's like the government does like 
tens of thousands of these a year each yeah you think you said forty five thousand or something like that yeah and so like these like really high level stats just weren't really satisfying my like curiosity about what exactly is broken with the problem and i should say i like came into this completely believing the thesis that these review laws needed like huge reforms in order to meet clean energy goals but the more reporting i did the less sure i was of that because Mm -hmm. it turns out that any time anyone kind of like looked at the problem more specifically they would find incredibly overburdened staffs just unable to uh meet the timelines that were put out ahead of them for these environmental reviews and in many cases the holdup wasn't even the environmental review laws specifically it was some other aspect of the process Mm -hmm. and there were just all these signs that like there was much more to the issue than just these laws are bad so like so I ended up writing like a, a story that basically got um, that basically dug into that. And as it happened, it published like only a couple of weeks before um, Mansion and Schumer published the guy like the, the uh, bullet points for their permitting reform, which is how this is often put um, their permitting reform process, which is basically like um, as far as I understand it, as as I'm doing this, this interview, um, the permitting reform is basically like. You get to name 20 projects you want to do. I get to name 20 projects <laughs> I want to do. And they won't have to go through environmental review. Right. And it's like, well, that's that's not reform. That's just <laughs> that's just gutting. Like, that's just saying, right. like, it, you know, I don't, it's just it's very bizarre to me. And it's like uh, a friend of mine I have who, who works at the Urban Institute, Yona Freemark, has put this very well, I think, which is like, there's a huge risk here of people with their hearts in the right place who care deeply about the environment, thinking that caring about the environment means caring about emissions and forgetting mm. about the whole ecology aspect yeah, of yeah. environmentalism. It's true. And, um, and I think that's like, he told me this after the story, which like, man, I would have loved to include a line like that in the story. Yeah. But instead I just get to talk about it afterwards, but he's exactly right. Like, like uh, that's just exactly the dynamic at play in a lot of cases. And, um, I, you know, one of the one of the interesting things I found in the story was like, as I was doing the research, like all of these examples where the environmental review laws absolutely did exactly what they were supposed to do and, yeah. and like stopped bad projects from happening because they would be bad for the environment. And if it wasn't for these environmental review laws, we would have never been able to stop them. Mm-hmm. And it's just like. And I'm not even using like a judgment call here on saying they were bad for the environment. Like, I mean, like objectively bad for the environment. And, uh, but the thing is nobody, you know, they're not, they're not widely known because they never happened. And the bad things that don't happen disappear from history very, very quickly. And so, so that was like another thing that I learned from doing that story too. So one thing that you and I have talked a lot about, uh, is our culture's fixation on electric vehicles as kind of like a solution to climate change. So yeah. what's what do, you've written a lot about EVs and batteries and fast chargers. I mean, what, what, I mean, it's transportation, but what drives your drives your thinking or interest about EV stuff? Well, first of all, I don't really think you can be a transportation reporter right now and not have a very keen understanding of electric vehicles. Um, mm-hmm. It is the biggest topic in American transportation. It's the most important topic in American transportation. And it's important not just because of the things it will do, but also because of the things it won't do. Mm. And I think uh, 
So, so my interest mostly largely stems from this kind of like professional obligation to understand it on a very detailed level. Um, and what I find is that, you know, my, my kind of where I've landed on electric vehicles is kind of like in the middle of the people who think it will save the world versus the people who think electric vehicles are basically no better for the environment than gas cars. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think any reputable kind of expert on the subject who has looked at the numbers has concluded that the transition to electric vehicles from gas cars is like an absolute necessity from an, from a climate yeah. perspective, but that we also need to drastically reduce our reliance on vehicles for our transportation needs. And we also have to pay attention to the efficiency of electric vehicles as well. Um, yeah. There's a big difference between electric vehicles and efficiency, just as there's a big difference between hmm. gas cars on efficiency. Like the difference between a Hummer EV and a Tesla Model 3 in efficiency is the difference between a jacked up Ford F-350 and a Prius, <laughs> you know? So it's like, right, right, right. you know, th these things matter. Um, yeah. All electric vehicles are not created equal. And it's especially important for EVs because the bigger, less efficient EVs need bigger batteries and the manufacturing emissions for EVs is larger than for gas cars, yeah. um, about twice as large, I believe. So, you know, depending on exactly the math. But so, you know, I think there, so the, and there's, then there's the, also the whole issue on charging infrastructure as well, right. which is tremendously misunderstood, I find, by most people and, and even some people who report on it regularly. So there's a, so there's just a lot there to kind of like, sink your teeth into. And obviously the Biden administration has made electric vehicles key to its climate pledges and its uh, uh, inflation reduction pledges. Yeah, I whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act named for uh, Joe Manchin's pet issue. Um, no, the, I mean, you know, it's like they, they pay a lot of attention to it too. And there have been a lot of initiatives on that through the two major right. infrastructure acts that the administration has passed so far. Um, so yeah, it's just like, there's a lot going on there for sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you taught me and now I've been paying a lot more attention to is just the, you know, that when people talk about EVs, a lot of times it's like, well, we need these fast charging stations to, uh, you know, to make it viable. And then it was through your writing that I realized, you know, like that these things are like fast charging stations use an intense amount of electricity. So like the largest ones, I think, if I remember correctly, it's like 200, the equivalent of like 230 households or something crazy like that. Yeah, I mean, so actually, right. and so actually you don't want people using these things a lot. You don't want a system that's highly uh, dependent on them, especially if it's like you're using, um, you know, fossil fuels to power your uh, electricity generation or whatever. The one thing I've learned reporting on this issue is that almost nobody understands how electricity works, like just mm -hmm. on the most basic level. Yeah. Um, and, and I absolutely count myself as among that before I started this. Like, you know, I was like, uh, there's this, there's this, uh, <laughs> I, I think back to the Simpsons moment a lot of times where Homer's trying to start an internet technology business and he keeps, first it's like, what is, what, you know, the internet for dummies, then it's marketing for dummies, and then it's the dictionary and it's what is marketing, you know, it's like the sequence <laughs> of the sequence of, of events. And I think that that's kind of like how I was doing like electric vehicle reporting at first. It was like, well, okay, what's an electric vehicle? Okay, what's a battery? Okay, how does electricity work? You know, I had to yeah, go back yeah. to like the very basics. And um, 
Yeah. So electric, uh, to your question, like fast chargers, electricity, this whole thing. Um, it's really important to understand this. Like if we want to take these goals seriously, especially because our grids are not especially reliable for yeah. huge upgrades as it is. And right. so we have to do this transition in a way that isn't too taxing on the grid. And the easiest way to think of electricity, and again, if you're listening to this and you are like a professional electrician, I apologize in advance. Um, <laughs> but like, it's a lot like water flow. You know, it's like, it's easy. To, that's an easy analogy to think of. And what, you know, if you charge at home, if you charge an electric vehicle at home overnight, it is a, a, a lower amount of water flow that like the existing water system could probably handle. But going to a fast charger and wanting to fill it up in, you know, 30 minutes or less, you're talking about opening the spigots and, you know, having all and just having this huge demand on the system all at once, yeah. um, which is a lot harder to accommodate if you are running an electrical system and so or a grid, I should say. So with the, yeah, the nice thing about learning all, all about electricity, though, is that like it's the metric system. All the numbers are very easy. You can do the math <laughs> yourself. Like it's actually like really easy to understand once you get the basics. And the base, and you know, so like you know a car's battery capacity, you know how fast it can charge in kilowatt hours, or you know the power in kilowatts. So then you can calculate how many kilowatt hours it take to charge it, roughly speaking. And then you can just like do the math on the power demand. Yeah. And so when you look at these fast charging numbers, you know now the new stations are being built to accommodate 350 kilowatts of power. Um, well, go ahead and look at your electrical bill. And, you know, do the math on, you know, each elect your electrical bill will show you how many kilowatts of power you used in a month. And you can do the math on like how long it would take for you to use that much, yeah. that much electricity charging the fast charger. And like, you know, I looked at my electrical bill one thing, one, one month and granted, I live in a, you know, a New York city apartment. So my energy usage is a lot lower than most people in the country, yeah. but like, I calculated that I used less electricity in one month than it would take to fully charge a Hummer EV. Wow. And it's like, so in a lot of cases, we're talking about, you know, especially with these bigger monstrous ESUVs, yeah. you know, the battery capacities are not trivial. People are reporting, you know, generally speaking, that their electricity use goes up 30 to 50% when they get an, ele wow. an electric vehicle. Now, that's not necessarily bad because again, it's like, you know, you're replacing all the, all the fossil fuels yeah, they were consuming sure. from a gas car beforehand. And yes, we need that electricity to be renewed, you know, generated in a new renewable fashion for this to be really worthwhile. But like, there's also a huge difference between charging that gradually overnight when the grid is already at a very low capacity Versus yeah. what it can accommodate versus at, you know, 3 p.m. on a hot, humid summer day, rolling up to a fast charger and plugging right. in for 300, you know, to get 350 kilo, kilowatts of power. Right. Um, that Those are two hugely different implications on the grid and what we yeah. need to do to accommodate the system. And so, like, that's a really important thing that I think is uh, missing from the from the kind of larger conversation about is like it's not just about transitioning people to EVs, but it's also about how we transition 
and yeah. what kind of power systems we rely on to do that transition. Uh, and if we end up with a system that looks a lot like people going to the gas station, that probably won't be very good. And I will also add, like, it's just it's just a waste of the convenience of electric yeah. vehicles, which is like one of the main things that people who own one love about it is that you never have to go to a gas station. You yeah. charge it like a phone every night. You don't have to worry about these things. Like maybe once or twice or six times a year or whatever, you go on a road trip where you have to use a fast charger. But right. otherwise, it's just like a thing that they never have to deal with and they love it. So yeah. like that's a huge selling point of electric vehicles and we shouldn't be trying to like minimize that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a, as a heads up, this guy, Robert Charette at IEEE Spectrum, the their IEEE's magazine. I think he goes by Bob. Um, he has a series coming out on the kind of system, systematic effects of EVs that looks like from mining. I'm increasingly seeing things like that. We're not mining nearly enough minerals from copper to all kinds of stuff to do this, yep. uh, to do this transition. But then he's also focusing on the electricity system. And he's been finding some really fascinating things where like, there are parts of California where the grid's like, we can't even have another EV in this small neighborhood. And the, one of the biggest problems apparently is that when you put e a bunch of EVs in a neighborhood, it reduces the life of transformers for from 18 years to three years. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And there, I didn't know that. There's 180 million transformers in the United States. So then, like, you think about what we would have to do systemically. So I think his pieces are going to kind of explore the big systemic pictures of the electricity grid and EVs that people just aren't talking about yet for the most part. So, yeah, that's fascinating. And like I do. So I, I knew about the transformer issue from a fast charger perspective, uh -huh. which is like one of the huge problems that these companies have in citing their fast chargers is that like you have to find not only a location that like people will actually go to and like is convenient right. for them, but also one that has the grid capacity for it. And uh, it turns out that can be really hard, especially yeah. in certain areas. And like, and a lot of times they'll, they'll, they'll get to a site and it'll be per and it'll be like the only one in some small town off a highway between two major cities, like just a perfect site, except like the transformer just doesn't have the capacity yeah. and they need the electric company to upgrade it. And the electric company just doesn't give a shit. And so they're like, yeah. you know, they're like, we'll get around to it when we get around to it. And yes. th so that's like a huge problem too. And like, yeah, yeah. It, there are lots, you know, as with it, you know, it's funny because like the people, you know, friends and family, when they hear something about electric vehicles or whatever, they're like, you know, they'll give me the same tire talk. It's like, oh, the range just isn't good enough for me right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you, know, <laughs> you, know, you drive 150 miles every day. Like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, or just like, oh, you know, I, I, I don't want to like deal with installing a new charger at home or whatever. Uh -huh. It's like, okay, that, you know, it's, it's funny because I they're like perfectly reasonable answers to those problems. Mm -hmm. Um but then the problems where I think it's actually going to be a lot harder to solve are ones that are off most people's radar. Yeah, totally. And I guess, and I guess that's probably how it is with most things. Yeah. I mean, what Charette and I started talking about is just, um, you know, almost like, you know, like, all right, it's great. California says like everything's going to be EV, but really what you need with that is the passage of a massive kind of electricity system law of some sort too, whether it's subsidies or regulations or something, you've got to change that struct system too. It can't just be the cars. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about, I mean, it looks like uh, it's, it's September 21st right now. 
Um, it looks like we've averted a uh, railroad workers, freight rail workers, like going on a big strike. But you did a lot of you did a lot of uh, pretty intense reporting about that. Like, weren't you up all night one night, like working on that issue? Uh, yeah, it was the night before the, t- the tentative agreement was agreed, actually. Um, I have been working on this subject for, uh, I think, like about 18 months now. Okay. Um, and I first heard of it when I came across this YouTube video that honestly looked like a hostage video. It was like this guy standing in front of a white back, like a Middle East ball guy standing in front of a white background reading this script. And, but something about the video was very, like struck me immediately. He was, he was a union representative for one of the rail carriers. And he was basically talking about how all of the biggest freight rail companies in America were using this management philosophy called precision scheduled railroading that was slashing workforce and maintenance costs so aggressively to pay increased dividends to its shareholders that he was terrified for the uh, safety of the nation's railways. Hmm. And I think he ended the video by saying something like, if anyone is watching this, I implore you to please act now. And it was like, a cry for help basically. Mm -hmm. And the video had like six views. So I was like, okay, I'm number seven. I guess I better like look into this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you know, like, like obviously a union would not be happy if corporate overlords are slashing headcounts. Right. Sure. Sure. But there was enough in what he said that made me think there was perhaps something more to the story. Yeah. And so I did a couple of months of reporting on that and then ended up publishing a story last year um, about, I think it's under the headline, like it's going to end up like Boeing because that's what I was hearing was like, everyone was basically like sounding the alarm in the way that people at Boeing were sounding the alarm about the 737 maxes. And uh, they were saying that there's going to be a catastrophe one day of a train loaded with like petroleum or other hazardous chemicals yeah. that derails and, Kills a bunch of people. Um, so I published the story. And then I've published a few intermittently since then. This year, it has mostly been about the attendance policies instituted by one of those railroads called, called BNSF, which is uh, a Berkshire Hathaway company. And basically, this attendance policy, the way railroad schedule, railroad worker schedules work is very different from almost any other job on the planet. Um, basically, they get a call and they have to be at work in 90 minutes. And there are strict federal rules about how long they have to rest after working, but there's no rules about how, how long they have to be available for, to, you know, to get a, that call basically. Mm-hmm. So like when you're a doctor and you're quote unquote on call, you know, it's like you can go do something else, whatever. But like if your phone rings, you got to go, go to the office for a bit. Um, For these guys being on call is completely different because it means not only do you go to the office for a bit, it means you lose the next like two to three days to work because you take the train somewhere else. Then you're there for 10 hours or up to 36 hours for your mandated rest period. And then you work another shift coming back to your base. 
And what this new attendant policy did was it reduced the number of off days, like actually off days where they were not on call from uh, about 75. Let me rephrase. Let me put it in a slightly different way. Under the old attendance policy, they were on call for basically 75% of their lives, not just, not just waking lives, but their lives. Under their new policy, it's over 90%. Holy shit. And what I was hearing from workers is like, I couldn't attend my brother's funeral. I couldn't, I had to cancel like an appointment to have surgery. I can't go to the doctor. I can't see my kids, you know, like just these absolutely draconian effects. And so I wrote a couple of stories on that and I knew the contract was and basically, in the meantime, they've been trying to negotiate this new contract with the carriers, um, with the railroads. And the freight rail story, like that contract essentially blew up into a national story last week because um, the, rail, the, the, the unions were threatening to go on strike, mm-hmm. mostly over these attendance policies. Hmm. And because workers are fed up, like they, yeah. as I think anyone can understand reading, you know, hearing what they have to go through. And the carriers were not willing to negotiate on that issue. They were only willing to negotiate on pay and healthcare, essentially. And wow. so uh, the last story I wrote on that was the night before I emailed, uh, I think I emailed over 100 freight rail workers who I had talked to over the course of the last 18 months. Wow. Ask it, and I asked them what, emailed and called. Um, and I asked them, what do you wish people knew about your job, basically. Because then the reason we asked that question was because there was a lot of reporting um, in the country's major papers and not so major papers that were kind of reducing the issue down to sick pay or sick leave, uh-huh, uh-huh. which is not incorrect. But I can, but like the reason why that happened is because they were hearing from union leaders, our workers can't even go to the doctor if they're right. sick. Right. And they translated that into sick leave or sick pay. But that that wasn't really what the issue was about. It was about these people were are losing their their lives to their jobs. And and so we ran that story with and I think it had 28 workers in the story who got back to me, you know, just overnight. Um, And yeah, but the the strike is not averted. Um, So the Mm. the temporary agreement has been reached between the union and their carriers but they haven't really said what the agreement is mm. and, and the workers have to ratify the agreement. And uh, it's not clear what's going to happen because no, it's not clear what's in the agreement. Yeah. So, so that's kind of where things stand at the moment on that issue. Hmm. So what's next for you, man? Do you, do you have a next big topic you're jumping into or you, where are you at? No, um, I try and take things more or less one day at a time. Uh, yeah. I am working on a story about, um, I could share this one because it's like, if anyone else wants to write about this, go ahead. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's, it, it comes from the environmental review law story I did where I'm looking into the process of community feedback for building infrastructure. Oh yeah, Jesus Christ. This uh-huh. idea. What are you going like, to do with that? <laughs> Kind of, well, I'm doing something very similar to what I did with the, with the NEPA story, which is like, uh-huh. this comes from somewhere, a time in American yeah. history when people thought like, 
having neighborhood busybodies weigh in on every new bike lane was yeah. a good idea. Yeah. And the question is like, where did that idea come from? What problem was it supposed to solve? And where, and how have we gotten into this, to this point now where I think absolutely nobody is happy with this process. Yeah. You know, like I've covered infrastructure for long enough now on the local state, federal level. Like I've seen these, I've seen these hearings and this process play out in all different venues Yet they all go exactly the same. Everyone is fucking miserable during all of these hearings. <laughs> Nobody's happy. Everyone's yelling yeah. at each other. And like nobody gets anything out of this. It's just a yeah. profound waste of everyone's time for like in like 99% of cases. And yeah. I'm always like I, I, whenever this isn't like the instinct that a lot of reporters have who have to cover the news all day, which is kind of why I like my job, which is like when I see these processes that like we've just internalized and accepted despite them being like important in how badly they work uh, <laughs> or don't work, I, yeah. I kind of like want to figure out like why they're still here and, yeah. and like why we put up with them. And so that's kind of like what that story is about. And I'm like, you know, like the NEPA story, it's going to be like an on and off thing reporting for a while, I'm sure. Um, yeah. But maybe it'll come out within the next like year or whatever. I don't know. Well, <laughs> Man. That sounds good. I, I, you know, I've written about those um, input processes around regulations and it's just it's a nightmare machine. I mean, does it does this your story go back to like the Administrative Procedure Act of, you know, like 44 or whatever it was? Is it that or does it come I, from somewhere else? I'm not looking so much at, at feedback on regulatory changes, yeah, although okay. I know that's totally a thing as well. Um, yeah. And I've come across it on a bunch of my stories, but I'm looking more at the feedback process as part of infrastructure construction, yeah, okay, which can right. be under environmental review laws, or it can be under state or even municipal laws. Right. Um, but where that really comes from is the sixties and seventies uh -huh. and the uh, revolt and backlash against urban renewal and yeah. highway construction. Cause there was um, a lot of bad stuff going on back there. I mean, you wanted those, you know, they were tearing yeah. up black neighborhoods and stuff. So you yeah, want it comes from, reform, it comes from you know? Well, as I, as I, you know, also point out, like it comes from a time when like, you know, not just were they building highways, but when people were thinking of the government, they were thinking of Vietnam, they were thinking yeah, of Watergate. Yeah. They were thinking of all of these high level scandals that are just like, that just like, obviously demonstrate an incompetent and evil government, you know? Yeah. And, and like, and then all the little urban renewal, little quote unquote, urban yeah. renewal projects that they hate, you know? And it's just like, yeah. not to mention like all the urban rioting of the sixties and the police is just like incompetent response to all of them. You know, there were just like so many examples at the time of government just not being good at its job. And, and like, now, now it's become a NIMBY tool, basically. Is that the thought? It, it has become a NIMBY tool, but like, it also is just an annoyance. Like yes. it's definitely like, like even if not only is it a NIMBY tool, like, yes, it is a NIMBY congregation. And like, yeah. it is the way that, you know, there have been studies done where people study like who shows up to these meetings and who comments on them. And it's like disproportionately represented by white male Republican landowners. And yeah. so it's like, and so it's like, well, I'm so glad so much has changed since 1756, you know, it's just like, um, but it's it, so like, 
it's problematic for a lot of reasons because like it obviously gives voice to the people who already have the most influence yeah, and power totally. when it was intended to do the exact opposite. But yeah. like, it's also a problem in that it slows down and provides nuance to issues where there aren't actually aren't that much nuance. Like, should we put a protected bike lane in this heavily dense urban area where on a road with lots of cyclists use versus like, I'm worried where I'll park my car now, you know, just yeah, like yeah, yeah. these types of things. And it's like, uh, recently, I mean, and it gets like, it's so ridiculous. The granularity of like these things that have to go through community review, like only last year did New York city make it so that they don't need to have a community review for putting in bike parking. Bike parking goes on the sidewalk, like next to the road where no, like, where, you know, it's just like, it, it couldn't possibly be any less of a problem for yeah. anybody. It's just like literally <laughs> a problem of how often can you deploy it? You know, and it's just right. like, so, but it's like all, only last year did it make, make it and that so that you don't have to go through community review to put these things in. And it's like, there are all these jokes about what a, what a farce this process is all around the country to the point where like, there was this great McSweeney's article a couple of years ago that was like about the representative NIMBY at a, at a community meeting. And like, it was placeless, but also it was everywhere. You know, like right. everyone recognized yeah. the voice of that person. And uh, the, the reason I'm writing about it is because it gets to really fundamental questions about um, what democracy looks like essentially. Yeah. And what yeah. people think, um, what people think building useful infrastructure in a democracy looks like in practice. Yeah. Whether, and, and whether that's, um, whether that's compatible with a vision of a very productive society or whether like the idea of participatory democracy and infrastructure fundamentally requires this extremely slow labor intensive yeah. uh, and, and just like bad process of, right. of, of, you know, before anything gets built. And like, if it doesn't, how do you reconcile these two? Cause like, I don't think yeah. anybody's really happy with the idea of like, you know, screw it. Just let, let the state DOT knock down whatever neighborhood they need again. That works right, great. Right, like nobody, right, nobody's right. arguing for that, but like there's gotta be a happy medium. And so one of the things I'm particularly interested in reporting this article is like seeing who's come up with some ideas there because man, yeah. do we need it? You know? <laughs> right. Right. Well, Aaron, I love how you think about all these topics and you have the bandwidth and freedom these days to explore it. So thanks. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today, buddy. Yeah, and thanks, Lee. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's uh, always good to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. Check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and is supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are hosted in the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the media production manager with Virginia Tech Publishing and serves as producer and sound engineer for Peoples and Things. Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. 
For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.